Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read Radical Candor by Kim Scott, a people management guide developed through Scott's years of working as a manager in high tech, including stints at Google and Apple. Radical Candor is about fostering relationships where people sincerely care about one another, but are also able to challenge each other directly. The book is a guide to developing these relationships in the workplace while avoiding the traps of ruinous empathy, manipulative insincerity, and obnoxious aggression. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager. Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell. I'm a management consultant. Uh, and I guess actually my update as of this month is that I am no longer a management consultant. I am now a VP of growth strategy in the healthcare space. So we can talk about that, guys. Didn't give you that update. Congratulations, Eli. That's, that's huge. And I'm David Kopek. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's start out with the author, or actually, let's talk about that first, Eli. So congratulations on the promotion. How did that come about? What, what's your new role like? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I am uh, uh, jumping over from my consulting company to the client that I've been working with for the past five months. It was a bit opportunistic, uh, you know, not exactly the role that I was looking for, but I've been working with them on building out a growth strategy and they were looking for somebody to actually help them implement it. And I had just gotten really excited about it. And I think a downside of consulting, which we've referenced on this show, in short, I know you're well aware of is that you're not involved in the actual implementation, right? So it can often feel like you're just making slides and you're handing it off. And I I wanted to get past that a little bit. So they asked me if I wanted to stay on and I kind of jumped at the opportunity and really, really excited for it. And I actually think that some parts of this book felt more relevant thinking about my new role uh, rather than thinking about my consulting role. Congratulations, that's really cool. Huge congrats. Are you still gonna be based out of New York? Yeah, the company is based in Raleigh, uh, but they're allowing me to work remote from New York. So we'll see. We'll see how that works in the post-COVID world as the people start to come come back to work, and I'm the only one that's remote. So before we get into the details of the book, let's talk a little bit about the author. Who is the author, Kim Scott? Yeah, so you already mentioned it a little bit, but Kim Scott led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick teams at Google. She was also an early faculty member at Apple University who helped to build out that program. She served as a coach to executives at Twitter, Dropbox, and Qualtrics. And she was the founder of Juice and now the co-founder and CEO of Radical Candor. And Radical Candor is the name of the book. It's the name of this new company she started, but we need to define it. We need to make sure we're all on the same page about it. So what is this Radical Candor framework that the book is built around. And can you please tell me how radical candor within that framework differs from manipulative insincerity, ruinous empathy, and obnoxious aggression? So what is radical candor? Sure. So essentially, Kim uh, set up this matrix with two axes. So the first is to care personally, and the second is to challenge directly. And the idea is that radical candor is when you both care personally about an individual and you challenge them directly. So the other, I guess, types of feedback that you mentioned, Copec, are ruinous empathy. So that's when you care personally, but you don't challenge directly. Um, And so you can think of this, and I'm sure that we've all experienced this in our careers, as somebody who says like, oh, like you're doing great, you're doing great. And it's like they care so much about you, but they don't give you that direct feedback uh, that you really need in order to grow. As opposed to obnoxious aggression, which is where a manager might challenge directly, but they don't care personally, right? So they're really obviously in the word aggressive manager, you know, they give all of the feedback, but they don't give it in a way that shows that they care about the person growing um, and that, you know, they care about them improving. And then finally, there's manipulative insincerity, which is when somebody doesn't care personally or challenge directly. And what she says throughout the book is, you know, you don't live in one quadrant, right? Like you are not a ruinous, empathetic person, or you are not a manipulatively insincere person, 
It's more that at specific points in which you are giving feedback or interacting with somebody, you might be acting with ruinous empathy or you might be acting with obnoxious aggression, but we should all be striving to act with radical candor or to be radically candid in that interaction just to help uh, kind of the individual grow, but also to help get the best outcome by giving the feedback that's needed. I thought that is actually the maybe biggest thing that I learned from reading the full book, as opposed to having just heard about radical candor beforehand, is that idea that like, of course, like you act in all of these different ways at different times. And so it's more about like getting to the radical candor, like 50% of the time, 80% of the time, like getting better and better at it. But of course, you're going to like not always be caring personally while challenging directly like that is it's hard to be doing both of those things. Yeah, it's interesting because the term is radical candor, and you totally get that the candor part comes from challenge directly on those two axes, right? But then the other axis is um, care personally, and radical doesn't really seem to come to me from care personally. In the new edition, she put in the preface, maybe I should have not called it radical candor, maybe I should have called it compassionate candor. And actually, that term makes a lot more sense to me when you put it along the axes on the framework. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree. I think that made sense to me up front, reading that in the foreword as well. Uh, I will also point out, I think the kind of funny story that she shares in the foreword was, I, I forget the specifics of it, but essentially she got called out on the show Silicon Valley, uh, where people use the term radical canter in her book, uh, you know, in the title of it, uh, essentially to be assholes, right? They're like, well, I'm going to be radically candid with you. And then they just completely destroy a person. And, you know, they're thinking of it as like, I'm just being candid with you and not the on the point of the axes of caring personally. And therefore, Kopec, as you said, being compassionately candid. Yeah, I think the compassionate candor would have been much better. And I feel like I had the same reaction where the first time I heard about radical candor, I assumed that it was like the Bridgewater brutal, like honesty kind of thing and not just and I, I didn't realize until I later saw the, the you know, uh, quadrant, you know, two by two, that it is about the caring personally. And and once I got that piece of it, I was like, oh, wow, OK, like that does actually make sense to me as like how you really are able to excel with a manager is someone who like really cares while, you know, pushing you. Yeah. And one, one thing I'll also call out on this is the description that I gave, I kind of referenced like a manager being radically candid. And she does make the point that this goes both ways, that it can also be a team member that is radically candid or, you know, gives feedback in within one of these quadrants up to their manager. She also mentions one person that tweeted, uh, tried radical candor with my manager and I got fired. So uh, I guess, you know, be, be cautious as you try these, these techniques with your manager. And uh, uh, she actually talks about how you should sort of invert it if you're an employee who's trying to raise it with your manager. So for a manager, she suggests you sort of implement these things about yourself. You like request direct feedback from people. You offer, you know, criticism that you've heard from someone to your team as examples that they could give you. And then, um, you know, from there, like by exemplifying it in that way, you can sort of uh, start to, to give it to your team as well. But that if you're the employee, maybe instead you say like, oh, I'm, you know, seeking radical candor, please like do this towards me. Here's some criticism, you know, I think, you know, might be applicable. Like these are these are the ways I'm trying to improve and, you know, challenging myself and, you know, whatever, some of the, the other uh, personal things as well. And then from there, once they've had that opportunity, if, if it's working well, you know, maybe it, it can become something where, you know, you're able to give that, that transparent feedback up to your manager as well, or boss, as she actually uh, insists on, on using. So we all kind of agree that maybe she should have gone with her newer title, Compassionate Candor, but we're going to use Radical Candor throughout the rest of the podcast just because that's what it's really known as. Thinking about Radical Candor, why is this concept so important? Does she clearly prove to you in the book that it's an effective technique for management? I feel like you're setting it up in that question, Kopech, of you're looking for some numbers and some results. I don't know if she shares numbers in the book. You know, it's a, it's a lot of anecdotes. And I guess there's an assumption that you're buying in to this is something that is valuable. And the book is more about how do you adopt this and put it into practice uh, than kind of proving to you that it works. Um, but she, she does, you know, kind of set it up of like, 
the purpose of this is to guide your team to achieve results. Uh, and I think she shares anecdotes about specific situations in which it's been successful. Um, I don't know if she really lays out the data that shows, you know, here's an organization that uses this all the time and therefore they've been more successful. Not sure if either of you uh, caught any of that in the book. I'm kind of surprised that we don't see some data in here because I believe Google actually did do some kind of systematic study and it was like psychological safety while taking on challenging problems are like the teams that excel the most. So I was kind of surprised that we didn't hear about like some of that data, which seems like to kind of be not the same thing, but, you know, similar that like this kind of, you know, approach would be a way to to create those types of teams. But yeah, she definitely focuses much more on anecdote. I did find it fairly compelling, but I think, uh, yeah, to, to answer Kopech's question directly, no, I don't think it was completely proven in the book. Yeah, I, I do think that it was quite compelling, but it, like you said, it's extremely anecdotal. I do want to draw a parallel to another book also coming out of somebody from Google, Trillion Dollar Coach, which we read in season one. It's actually our second most popular episode of all time, if people want to listen to it, season one, episode three. Anyway, it's a book really about something very similar. It's about Bill Campbell, who was an executive coach, just like Kim Scott has become an executive coach. And he also practiced what basically is radical candor. And that book, Trillion Dollar Coach, takes the opposite approach. Instead of being anecdotal, it is just totally full of citations of psychological studies, so much so that the citations actually take away from the anecdotes. So I think reading the two books together actually gives you both sides of the equation. But this book is certainly on the not data side of the equation. Let's talk about the caring dimension, because there are these two dimensions, right? Caring and challenging. How can you build caring relationships at work, ac according to Scott? So I, I'm sure we'll have different you know, answers for this. The one that I found most tangible is she sort of talks through the the idea of these career conversations. And I actually had a manager that did this with me relatively recently. So it was interesting to to read the book after having gone through the career conversations without having like the full context of the book. Although I think I did listen to a podcast about it that was, you know, I don't know if it was created by Kim Scott, but I think it did have radical candor in the name of the the podcast. But anyway, in the career conversations, you have a series of three conversations where you first ask someone to tell me your life story back to kindergarten. I'm not sure if I'm like remembering the wording exactly, but that's sort of the the gist of it. You know, really just like asking that person, you know, what's your history? What's your past? How, how did you get to where you are? And asking sort of probing questions as they're, they're telling that information to try and learn more about what motivates them, you know, what um, excites them, what, you know, they're passionate about. Uh, the second conversation is talking about their dreams. And so like, you know, where do you see yourself in, you know, 10 years, whatever, like what like would make you completely satisfied in your life, all of those types of things. And then the final conversation is about creating a, an 18 month plan or, you know, whatever you can structure it however you want, but to, to sort of start to achieve some of those dreams uh, based off of what you'd learned from their, their history. And having those conversations with my manager, I, I did find like actually really um, powerful. And we did learning things about each other. Uh, for instance, he went to Dartmouth, which I did not actually know until we had that conversation, which is kind of weird that it hadn't come up before. But, um, you know, by going through those things, you find things that, you know, you, you relate to uh, potentially, obviously, it depends on the individual manager that you're speaking with. But yeah, I, I did find that like, actually pretty effective, especially in creating these kinds of relationships in a remote environment, which I think makes it even more difficult. Sure. Was that with your current manager that you did that? Um, he actually left the company, so he is no longer my current manager. Okay, got it. I, I just know that you had to uh, read the book as part of at, at work, right? So I was just wondering if it was like there was an explanation of what those career conversations were along with the book. It was part of that 18-month career plan that we created in the uh, the third session. I don't know if that's actually true or if it was in like a follow-up development conversation. But yeah, some of the, the plans we created out of it uh, then developed into um, me taking on an employee and uh, him suggesting that I, that I read this book as part of that. Oh, nice. Well, ha happy we were a part of that. Yeah, I think for me, that was probably most tangible as well was the, the description of these conversations. You know, I, I think the one of the key points that Scott makes throughout the book is that caring personally doesn't necessarily mean that you need to like be buddies and socialize outside of work. You know, she actually has a whole 
chapter almost on like socializing outside of work and like is like hey remember if you're the boss and you're saying like you have to come to this happy hour or like or if you're the boss and you're and you're saying hey let's have a team happy hour everyone else is going to hear it as you must come to this happy hour and it's now a work activity right like they don't the team doesn't necessarily see it as something that's fun so caring personally doesn't necess- doesn't mean that you have to always bring alcohol and always be socializing outside of work. You can care personally within work as well. And yeah, I think the key uh, tangible point for me was on the career conversations. Sure. I was just curious about your experience doing that because this is something that I do with my teams already. Um, And so it's weird because like consulting is just hard here, right? Because it's so transient and, you know, I work on, three and four week projects sometimes like my longest project has maybe been well I guess my current project has been five months and that's definitely been my longest project in consulting and it's just hard because you know you can't you can't do three 45 minute conversations during a three-week project uh and then move on to the next team right like there's just that's far too much investment but I do usually ask people to come to our first uh, one-on-one feedback discussion with plans to share with me like what their goals are. And like, you know, I want to hear kind of like their real career goals and like, let's talk about like, how can we help you get there? And like, what's the stepping stone that this case is? And I have just been like very disappointed, honestly. And like a lot of the conversations that I have with people is like, they're like, oh, like, my goal is to get promoted, right? Like it's all just like within consulting. I'm just like, oh, like this is so boring, right? Like what is your real goal? And I just like, I don't know if people just aren't prepared to have that conversation or they just don't want to be so honest with somebody kind of with their new manager, right? When they're meeting them. But short, I'm curious kind of what made that successful for you. Well, I think having been a consultant myself, that the short-term nature of projects might make it a lot more difficult to have those conversations. So I don't really know what the answer is there. I mean, I still think it's a good idea to try it. And especially if it's a longer project, then maybe you do go through like that that full thing. Um, none of us are consultants now, so I guess we won't try it out. But uh, I wouldn't say consultants couldn't try to do this. But I think like, especially if it's a three-week project, it's probably like a little bit above and beyond to try and go through that whole thing. But I did not expect to have my manager leave shortly. So that I guess was part of it too. He was my manager for, I guess, like four months. Um, so it was relatively brief, but I do think that that was very effective. So, I mean, it did take three weeks. We did it over three weeks every, you know, actually maybe we did it over six weeks. I think I think we did it in three. Um, I think we ramped up the development conversations for that that one period. He did actually take a different stance from what this book suggests. So she suggests doing these during your weekly one-on-ones that like basically you just don't have enough time. And so, you know, you, if you're going to do all these conversations, and I think that's probably a good point. If you have five direct reports right now and you're trying to implement this, that's probably the only way you could tangibly do it. But if you are, you know, just starting as a manager and you only have one or two, I think it probably does make sense to invest in these as separate conversations. And so, yeah, um, I, I think one, I did put some thought into it and like did prepare, like what what stories do I want to tell him that I think might help reveal like where my strengths are and, you know, where I want to grow. And, you know, he did have me do some homework for it too. Like I did listen to a podcast about like the the purpose of it. And so, you know, I think anytime you have like those kinds of development conversations with like a specific goal and intention where people put in some work beforehand, those tend to be very valuable. It's more when you have like a standing conversation and then it's just like, okay, well, like we wrote something down about what my six month plan should be. Now let's like pull it up because I wasn't paying attention to it. Like those are when those conversations feel like stressful or whatever. I feel like he did a good job of like making me actually prepare for it such that they were really productive. Yeah, I like the idea that there was like homework in advance, listening to a podcast. Maybe maybe one day uh, some manager will tell people to listen to this one. Absolutely. We hope so. So we've talked a bit about the caring dimension. Let's talk about the other dimension, which is the challenging directly. This is what makes a lot of people uncomfortable. A lot of people are like, you know, I'm ready to open up a little bit and start having more of a connection with my employees. But are people always ready to actually tell employees what they really think or vice versa for employees to tell managers what they really think? How do you go about fostering an environment where challenging directly is accepted? How do you make challenging directly practical? So I talked about this a little bit earlier, but one example that she suggests is really starting by soliciting the feedback rather than giving it to start. 
And so creating a culture where once someone has felt comfortable giving you some direct feedback and challenging you on, on how you're, you're performing as a manager, they will perhaps be more willing to, to hear it from, from you. And so especially if you have built out that, that caring personally piece in the interim, they're going to be more capable of hearing it. But to be perfectly honest, I don't know that I am especially great at this thing. So like, I'm, I'm going to try it. I'm, you know, uh, interviewing some people tomorrow and we'll have sort of more, uh, more employees soon. And so it's definitely something that I'm going to, to seek to, to get better at, but I don't know that I am especially great at challenging directly outside of, you know, their obvious like work things and skills and whatnot that it's easy to like, to, to bring up. But I don't know when someone like does a bad job, I probably don't say this is a bad job. And I don't know if that's exactly what she would want you to do either, but I'm probably a little bit more uh, indirect than I really should be based on what this book has been uh, suggesting. Well, for short, congrats on uh, growing your team. I know that's a big deal. Yeah, I think so. I, I guess a criticism that I would have of this book is that it felt like sometimes it felt like I was reading a laundry list of advice. And then sometimes it felt like she was going like, super deep and super specific in certain areas and then like staying really broad in in others. Like, for example, the book talks about how make sure that you keep tissues like not at your desk in in case employees cry so that you have to like get up and it breaks the conversation, but also keep water right there because like just the process of like unscrewing the bottle of water is like helps people if they're crying. (laughs) Really, it was just like so incredibly specific. Um, So this was something where I like, it was hard to track what the big uh, takeaway pieces of advice were. I think for me, um, the key takeaways were one, to just be timely and give feedback immediately. And this is something that I am horrendous on. And my teams have told me that I am horrendous at it for years now. And I, I, you know, I think, you know, credit to this book, it actually made me, appreciate more what the benefits are of giving timely feedback. So helping me think about how I want to strive uh, to give timely feedback, right? Like, and it's like, take the two to three minutes after the meeting in between meetings and just say like, hey, you stumbled a lot when you introduced that product during that meeting and it made people lose confidence in you. So like next time, like let's work on your introduction there, you know, just like say that immediately after the meeting. The other thing that she said was to just be very specific in the feedback that you're giving. So that example that I just gave was specific in you stumbled, it made people lose confidence in you. So next time, let's practice how you introduce it in advance. Uh, I think for me in management consulting, we are often not specific in the feedback. And there's this pressure I feel at my company to give this broad general feedback of like, oh, this person has challenges with their practicality and effectiveness. And like, you know, it means X, Y, and Z and all of this. And it's like, no, how about we just say, hey, you didn't hit the deadline there, right? Like, and and I need you to hit the deadline because I've been waiting for you. So next time, if you know that you're going to be late, communicate with me, right? Like, and not to generalize it, I, I think made it feel much less stressful for me to give feedback. Kopek, did you catch any other pieces of advice here as, you know, we're thinking, how can you challenge directly? Well, you mentioned about timeliness, and I would just build on that. She talks about not waiting for a meeting. So it's not just like wait for the next meeting to immediately give the feedback, but even stop the person in the hallway or even right after they did something wrong, tell them immediately. Or if if they did something great, too. That was the other thing is that you want to be giving praise in a very direct and very immediate form, just as you're giving criticism. But absolutely, this idea that you don't wait for a meeting to give somebody feedback. You just right away give the feedback or the next possible opportunity. And it doesn't need to be a big drawn out thing. Somebody made a mistake. You don't need to have 15 minutes or half an hour diving into it with them. It can be two to three minutes. And so that immediacy and that not waiting for a formal time, I think, was one of the big takeaways for me. Is that how it works in your organizations? You talked a little bit about it in consulting, Eli, but in general, are, are, do you feel that your teams challenge directly? I was going to say that I had a manager who, in retrospect, probably had just read this book also, who brought this up 
and said, like, I'm going to try to do this, but please, like, ask me after meetings for feedback. And I honestly think for like a week or two, she was very good about it. And then neither of us kind of continued with it. And like, I think it's really effective. I just think it actually is a hard habit to form, especially in workplace cultures with like a, um, I don't know, constant meeting type thing. You're always going from one thing to the next. I think Kim Scott gives the suggestion of using the speedy meeting sort of default in Gmail, or she doesn't actually specifically relate it to, to Google Calendar, but Google Calendar has this option where 30 minute meetings become 25 minutes, one hour meetings become 50 minutes, and actually enforcing that so you do have time to get from one place to another and you do have time to, to give feedback. I would think that in like a Zoom world, this is even more difficult to do. But again, the, the manager who suggested I read this book did actually tend to give Slack feedback right after we had meetings and it was, it was very effective. So I do think it's great if you can do it. I think it's probably a hard thing again to force on yourself, but it's probably a habit that becomes natural once you get used to it. And so just, you know, having that become the norm, um, I think is, is very effective. And it's obviously more meaningful when you hear it right after it's happened rather than, you know, a week later in your next one-on-one. Yeah, I think it's especially difficult in the Zoom world because it's like in an in-person world, you would presumably be walking out of the meeting room together. And as you're walking down the hall, maybe you could just say something to somebody. And in the Zoom world, you know, you log off and you log on to your next Zoom and the other person is logging on to another Zoom and like there's there's just not time to do it. So if it's not something that you are already good at doing, I think it's a really hard habit to form in the Zoom world. In my organization, you know, like, Feedback is big in consulting. Uh, it's what it's what consulting firms really pride themselves on. So we have you know very formal feedback sessions set up every two weeks. Uh, you know I have separate feedback sessions for people to give upward feedback to me as to give downward feedback to them. You know there's this whole skip meetings thing that we'll talk about in a bit. I think, but an element of that happens in consulting as well. But yeah, I I find myself as a manager that when somebody on my team is presenting at a meeting or something like I will, I'll take notes on feedback, right? Like it's kind of my role and the ethos at my company is that when I'm working with a consultant as a manager, like my duty as a manager at my company is to essentially put somebody back in the talent pool better than I received them, uh, which there is certainly a better way that that is stated by some people much more eloquently than I say, uh, except that is that is what it is. And it is something that I actually do get behind. And I, I've known that I'm bad at giving timely feedback. And I, I've tried different things, right? Like I've, I've tried Slack messages and I've tried, you know, pinging somebody immediately after and saying like, hey, like, let's jump on a Zoom debrief. And of course, they're already off to the next thing. And it just doesn't seem to work out very well. And what frequently happens, and I mean, like, what's on my mind right now is uh, that I'll have the feedback meeting a week and a half later. And I'll have my like, oh, okay, like, remember this meeting a week ago? Like, here's what happened, blah, blah, blah. Right? Like, and, and I have like all of these details. And I you can just see it in the person's eyes that they're just like, why did you just sit on this? Or like, I don't even remember what you're talking about. Like we've had three other meetings since then with that person. I didn't get to improve. And I'm just, I'm just really bad at it. Uh, So I've been, I've been working on it. And as, yeah, as I said, I think, you know, this book helped encourage me to think of it as being even more important than I have been thinking about it. Yeah. It's something that I'm probably like embarrassed about as like how I do as a manager. Kobeck, I'm so curious what this is like in the academic world. Yeah, so I thought about this book in two different contexts. So I serve as co-program director of computer science. So I go to these meetings of managing the program and, you know, the larger meetings of different programs at the school. And so I manage a group with my co-program director, Brian, of about 15 faculty. And I would say that we're not very candid with one another about, um, you know, different people's performance. It's certainly not we're definitely very compassionate about one another. So I think there's a lot of that care personally, but I I don't think that faculty go to each other and say like, Hey, I really don't think uh, the feedback I'm getting from students is you're not doing a good job teaching that class. That would be seen as pretty outside the culture. If I was to do something like that to, to another faculty member, even though I, I serve as program director. But then I also thought about this in the context of managing classroom teaching. I mean, a huge part of my job is giving feedback. I grading, right? That's I do that nonstop. I'm always grading. That's, um, that's a good and, point. 
Yeah. So like my, it's a huge part of my job and you have to be careful because being a teacher is quite different from being a manager. You do need to manage the classroom and you do need to set expectations. You need to make sure that people are achieving results, but you're there to encourage. You're not there to, you're never, you can't fire somebody first of all. Uh, So there's no ultimate like stick there. And you need to also be somebody who is getting people to find out what they're good at, not just uh, figure out if somebody is the right fit for a job, but you know what's the right fit for a lifetime, really? Is this a right like field and career for you? And so that's, that's quite different. And I think you do need to approach it with, with more of a tender embrace, let's say, of the feedback. At the same time, I think that I am too much of a softy. And it's funny because I, I remember sometimes I always get shocked when people actually think that I'm I'm tough because I'm compared to I think compared to a lot of instru- other instructors, I'm not. But what Scott says about timeliness, I think is so important as an instructor because students will forget about like an assignment after two weeks. And we actually ask students, feedback goes both ways. We we're teaching college. So student reviews are huge and they're a really big part of how we're evaluated is what did the students think of our classes? And one of the questions we always ask is, did you feel the timeliness in this class was appropriate in terms of getting you know, assignments graded, et cetera? And students really, really care about that. Like if you give them feedback two weeks instead of, let's say, two days, they feel really like they didn't know where they were at during the semester. They, they felt a little lost about how they were doing. They really lose a lot of respect for you as an instructor if you're not timely in your feedback. So a lot of this made sense, but not all of it in that, you know, obviously it's not the same in terms of what the ultimate consequences are for doing a bad job or what our ultimate goals are for what it means to be successful. Being successful doesn't always mean that you had the highest results, maybe you're not even capable of the highest results. Being successful might just be that you found out this is not the right field for you, but you still did adequately, right? Anyway, uh, sorry, I went on a huge tangent there. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think you're you're operating more in a role of, of mentor. And there was actually one part of the book that frustrated me a little bit, which was in this care personally dimension about understanding a person's goals and, you know, like, essentially it just felt very lofty of like, Oh, like carve out, like, you know, if this person wants to, what the Spinola farm or whatever that the, the person wanted, uh, to go and manage, uh, start after working at Google. And it was like, Oh, so it mattered more to them that they got management experience than getting like analytical experience. So like we carved out those opportunities for her and like, she didn't need to like present. So she, so we didn't make those opportunities. And I was like, that is so lofty. Like sometimes you just need somebody if they're in that role to do analytics, right? And Kovac, it seems like, you know, and as that teacher mentor role, you are able to be a bit loftier and carve out and talk to somebody about what their real goals are. Whereas I don't think that you can truly always do that uh, in a work context. Absolutely. Yeah. At our college, all faculty serve as what's called being faculty advisors, which means we help students pick their classes the next semester. What minor do they want to do? Is this even the right major for them? I'm having conversations like that with students all the time. And even in a class context, when students don't necessarily have me as their advisor, they still will come to office hours and talk to me about what their life goals are and whether the class route that they're taking is going to get them there. So yeah, it's absolutely very different. I, and to me, those pages really spoke to me. But I could absolutely see how if you're at an organization with a lot less resources than Google, you can't just be like, oh, uh, this person that would rather be doing management, I'm going to let them do some management. Like you just have a limited amount of resources, you have a limited amount of people, and you need something to get done by a certain deadline. You can't just be like airy-fairy, like, yeah, do what is going to be more fulfilling to you. Um, So that really was kind of like a privileged position that I think working at Google or Apple kind of gives you with how you deal with people that is not necessarily applicable to all companies. I mean, I, I guess to push back a little bit, I would say if you really think someone is in the wrong position, that it probably does make sense to tell them that in once you have built up a relationship where you can have that conversation. Because if they're not doing the right thing, then like they're, they're going to be better off like being directed in that direction. And if you can tell them that now, 
so that they, you know, you know, they're starting to look for something, but you have time to start trying to find someone to replace them. You might be in a better position than just like, oh, you've got someone sort of mediocre in the role. But I think the point is definitely still valued that there are places where you just don't have that opportunity at all. I guess I was just going to say that, like, it, you don't have to be at Google to be in a position to recognize someone that is like not in the right position. And you're going to be better off finding someone to replace them than it is to just like have them do an OK job there. That's a really great point. Let's move on from talking about people who are not doing a good job to people that are doing a great job. So the book has this concept of rock stars and superstars. Can you tell us what a rock star is, what a superstar is, and do you think making this distinction between rock stars and superstars is actually a valuable thing to do, for example, at your organization? Yeah, I, I loved this uh, setup that she had on rock star and superstar. So essentially, by her description, a rock star is somebody who is a really solid rock at their job, but they're just not on kind of a career growth trajectory path, right? Like, and be it that, you know, they're starting a new family and like, they just want to be able to spend more time with their kids. Be it, you know, she, I think she had examples of like two Olympians who were busy uh, training for the Olympics. So they just like, didn't have the time to devote to growing their career at work, or maybe it's just their aspirations, but they're really good at their job as opposed to a superstar, which is somebody who is also good at their job, but on a, a really fast paced trajectory. And like, they want the next promotion. They want to grow. They're trying to like, they see themselves in your role and the role beyond. And I think that the reason that this is a good differentiation is because different assignments or, you know, tasks are going to be perceived differently by rock stars or superstars, right? Like a rock star might be somebody who's willing to grind down and do some of the the hard, you know, work of just like, okay, we need we need to track the outcomes here, right? Like and spend time on that. Whereas like that would just kill the superstar, right? Because it's like they they want to shine. They want the role that's going to help them grow. And I liked it because I, I have seen this at organizations, right? So when I was at CVS before consulting, CVS very much had rock stars who were people who didn't get promoted and were just kind of in the same role year after year. And the challenge was like, I don't think that they were rewarded for that. They were incredibly valuable to the company, but I think like they were just kind of looked down on because like the management, right? Like the leadership at the company are all people who were superstars at some point, right? Like people that did aim for higher goals, right? Like, and, you know, on that promotion trajectory and the growth career path. So they kind of look down at the person that's happy, happy being an individual contributor. And, but those people really like kept the company going. And I think that we probably could have done more at CVS to really celebrate those individuals who are really good at their job, but aren't aiming for higher goals. And then I think, you know, I look at consulting and in consulting, it's just very different because it's an upper out culture or not, not culture, it's an upper out business model, right? Like our associates and consultants, if they're not promoted to the next level, they're, they're counseled out of the company. And I think that it hurts us a little bit, I think, because it means that we year after year are training new associates and consultants and there isn't the option to kind of like have that career consultant of the person who is really good at their job and only does their job. And it, it also means that the assumption is if you're a good consultant, you're going to be a good manager. And I, I really don't agree with how, you know, all of those assumptions and how that business model is set up. I understand it, right? Because they want the new talent coming in year over year and they want they want the people who are aiming to grow at the company. But I do think that, you know, the fact that we lose talent of people who would be happy staying in a consultant role and who, who are really good consultants can hurt us in some ways. Yeah, I feel like in consulting firms, the only place where I really saw those kind of rock stars were in more like research and sort of, uh, I don't know if you'd call it like sort of a middle office type position where you know, you're doing research and things that get presented out to clients in some ways, but you're maybe less like on the client site, like actively engaged in projects directly and more like supporting a few different ones and things like that. And that those were sort of the positions that people could move into when they didn't want to be on that, like burning all hours uh, grind of, you know, 
trying to trying to get to that next level. I really liked this this idea, and I think especially calling them rock stars is just like such a great way to refer to people that are very very good at a job and not seeking to you know move up to the next thing necessarily. I thought that was like a, a really cool part of the book, and I do think it's yeah something that a lot of businesses miss. And I think she was even like pretty practical about giving some ways that you can try, try and you know show off your rock stars with like having them teach courses on the thing that they're an expert in, having them you know give presentations, you know finding ways to highlight the you know very deep expertise that they may have in you know a niche space that makes them incredibly valuable to the company, even if they don't want to you know get promoted five times in the next ten years. Let's get into some of the practical suggestions for making radical candor more of an everyday thing in an organization. Scott talks quite a bit about meetings. I think we can talk in general about Scott's recommendations for meetings, but one thing I definitely want to make sure we don't miss is a very specific idea called skip level meetings. What are those and can you cite any examples of how those have worked in practice? Yeah, so she sets up skip level meetings essentially are when your manager would meet with all of your direct reports to get feedback on you and then report that back to you in an anonymized, um, aggregated fashion. It sounded interesting. So I think my experience with this is most of the organizations that I've worked with do some sort of 360 degree reviews, right? So as a manager, I get upward feedback submitted by everybody that I work with. I technically have a career advisor, and we can come back to this one, who then meets individually one-on-one with everybody that I've worked with over the past six months. And his responsibility is to kind of like pull all of this together into one story about the upward feedback that I'm receiving. I think what was different about skip level meetings is that it sounded like the manager meets with everybody on your team all at once, right? So it, there's, it's not individual meetings. And, you know, just in the, what I've pointed out earlier of like the level of detail that she gets to do in this book, it's like, and you should project the notes that you are taking and you should be the one who takes the notes and people should have the opportunity to edit the notes, right? So the, uh, the manager is asking the team the question of like, okay, what can this person do that would allow you all to be more effective or more impactful in your roles? What's something that they can stop doing? What's something they can start doing more of? Like those types of questions. And they type down the notes, they record the notes, and then they say, okay, I'm going to go meet with this person in 15 minutes. Like, let's approve what is written here. And then they come and meet with you. Um, it did sound like it would be really helpful. I mean, of course, like you think of it and you're like, well, there might be like one strong voice in the room or like who, what about the person who dissents and is like, oh, like, I don't think that this person does all of this so well or something. Um, and she has, she has advice for addressing that, but it, it sounds like her teams love it, right? Like one thing that she said was, you know, you can only do one of these per year. And, you know, the challenge is like her team has loved it so much that they ask to do it like every quarter or every month. And she's like, no, that just becomes completely unreasonable. And yeah, certainly sounded like an interesting idea for me, not something that I think my team would actually put into place. Yeah, I mean, I I get it. And I've experienced more what Eli talked about. So I've dealt with 360 reviews and I've had what we called skip level meetings, which was me meeting with my manager's manager. And that was on like, you know, some kind of regular basis once a quarter or once a month or something like that. And I think that that can be really effective but the idea of having like one group that's doing it, I mean, I guess it makes sense in like an annual, like when you're going through annual review type process, I, I guess I could understand it, but it just seems like it would be a very strange meeting to be in where you're like listening to other people give feedback on your manager and then thinking, I, I don't know, it just sounds very strange. I think like doing it one-on-one rather than in a group feels more effective. Obviously it takes more time. And so I feel like she got very specific about the way she handled like managing 10 employees. And like, this is how she did that. Because if you have 10 employees, and they all have 10 employees, then obviously, you cannot meet with all of those people, you know, once a quarter. But it, yeah, it just seems like a little bit of a, a like excuse for how to get that feedback when you're managing kind of too many people and have too many direct reports with too many direct reports. I could definitely see people using this as an opportunity to just rag on their bosses. And I will say one Example, a lot of people might be aware of of this is from Kitchen Nightmares. That's what I thought of immediately. Gordon Ramsay goes to restaurants, fixes them up. 
When he gets there, he always has the first thing he does is have a skip level meeting. He takes the owners and the manager says, leave the room. And then he meets with all the lower level employees. And that's where he really finds out what's going on at the business. So it's at least been super effective for Kitchen Nightmares. Another meeting concept in the book is breaking up meetings between debate meetings and decision meetings. So when you have something big, something really important that the team has to discuss, first you have a meeting where you talk about it, and then you have another meeting later on where you actually make a decision. To me, that sounded a little bit odd. I know where I work, what we do is we have a debate, and then at the end of the debate, we decide. Um, Do you think there's a big benefit to breaking up between debate meetings and decision meetings? I think this is like a pure scale thing where when you're at Google or Twitter or whatever, and there's so many different teams that need to be involved in something and they're all going to need to work together to actually make it happen, then you need to really like get everyone to agree in this kind of way. And so having this little bit of a drawn out process that leads to everyone feeling like they were really heard and then a decision was made and then they can all get together and like move forward with it. It probably makes sense. I think at most companies, it would be a little bit weird to like go through all of these different steps if you don't really need to. But I think the the idea, I, I've seen people try it again at like very large companies and I think it can be successful or not, honestly, depending on the person. But I, I do think the idea of like, everyone needs to be heard. Everyone can even say like, this is just a debate meeting. So I can even ask like, what is the data on this? And people need to like go back and answer that question about what the data on this is before we then make the final decision is like kind of the point. And, but it's just like, it means a lot of work needs to happen in order to make this decision. Like this decision needs to like cost a lot of money for us to put all this work into making this decision. And so it needs to be a pretty large organization for it to really make sense. One thing that did resonate with me from it was being very specific about the objectives in a meeting, right? Like to say, this is a debate meeting or this is a decision meeting. I don't think in consulting that this would realistically work. I mean, like I have a challenge getting an hour with all of the partners at the same time on a weekly basis. So like we just can't split meetings up. We have to debate and make a decision in the same meeting. As I'm now thinking about my new role, there probably is going to be a little more opportunity for it. And I think it could be helpful to be very clear about when we are having debate and to open up for debate when there's time for it. So have, I haven't put it in, into practice, but I do actually think that I'm, I might think about how that concept can be applied in my new organization. Scott has a lot of other recommendations about meetings, things that we've heard about in many other books we've read and that pretty much every organization practices, things like one-on-ones and how important they are and how many you should do. Was there anything that stood out to you about Scott's other recommendations around meetings that differ from your organizations or that you found particularly interesting? I feel like the walk around idea was the only thing that really stood out to me as a little bit different. I'm sure I've heard it in other contexts, but just less frequently. And I work in a remote company at this point, so uh, certainly don't have walk around opportunities necessarily. But the basic concept there, um, I think she said it came from HP, I want to say. Anyway, uh, if anyone remembers what the actual uh, source was, uh, feel free to to disagree with me afterwards because it's probably not HP. But the basic point was that the CEO should literally just walk around the company, find people who they haven't talked to in a while and just say, what are you working on? And through that, get some exposure to you know, what's really going on in the depths of the company you know, outside of your direct reports and their direct reports and stuff like that that you might be getting through these other meetings that you talked about. And she gave like specific examples of using that in order to sort of uh, personify really getting things done within the company. And so, you know, Dick Costolo at Twitter overheard employees complaining about how there were dishes, you know, in some place. And he was just like, oh, okay, like, do you think it would be better if the dishes were over there instead? They'd be a little bit like more out of the way. And everyone was like, yeah. And then he, the CEO of this, you know, huge company just moved the dishes just like, all right, there's a problem. Let's just solve it. Like, this is how our company works. Everyone can solve any problem that's like causing problems for everyone else. And so, you know, I thought those examples were kind of cool and it's it's an interesting idea. The other ones that she uh, did suggest just to like throw them out there for everyone to hear are staff meetings, think time. So this was, I guess, a little bit different also, you know, you know, blocking time in your calendar to be able to think. I think it was another thing that she'd taken from Dick. You talked about the big debate and the big decision meetings, all hands meetings, which she suggested you should have after the big decision meeting to communicate that out even further within the organization about these are the decisions that have been made. No meeting time, 
and then Kanban boards. And again, these are things that, you know, sort of I have dealt with in in other places and, and heard about. But, you know, I think they are good ideas. To the point of like the level of specificity that she gets to in this book, uh, yeah, some one thing that I found interesting was like she gave a specific agenda for what you should use in staff meetings. You know, she, it says, okay, 20 minutes on learn, review key metrics, 15 minutes on listen, put updates in a shared document, and 30 minutes on clarify, identify key decisions and debates. And that's essentially setting up the uh, big decision and big debate meetings that have to happen. It, it's just interesting. I mean, that not something. I don't know what I will be putting into practice in uh, my next role, but it's there. And, you know, she admits like staff meetings suck, all hands meetings suck. Like not many companies have figured out how to do these successfully. So here's the specific agenda that I suggest that you follow and the objectives that you use for those meetings. And David, you were correct. It is cited that Eulid Packard in the 1970s did a lot of walk around meetings. And she also cites Abraham Lincoln, apparently a fan of walking around. Okay, so let's talk about something very specific. Scott worked at both Apple and Google, and she, in the book, multiple times contrasts the culture at the two companies and also some of the management techniques used. What were the differences between Apple and Google, according to Scott? So I just remember one specific anecdote she gave about herself, which is that she had this... um, car that really stood out and that at Google, she was constantly like running from meeting to meeting. And she was trying to create a uh, culture where like breaking the rules was kind of encouraged. Like this is like a soft, like we're, we're not really like gonna, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna color outside the lines kind of place. And so she would constantly be driving from place to place and like parking, like not in like a true parking spot. And like people kind of talk about it. She was like, if I were trying to set an example that, you know, we are, you know, completely by the book and like everything should be within the lines and blah, 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 then this wouldn't be good. And she was like, at Apple, I parked in my appropriate parking spot. So just one example of the the idea that, you know, Apple is a lot more manicured and like perfect. And Google tends to be a little bit more like, let's move quickly. Let's try a bunch of different ideas. Let's let people do whatever. Apple wants to have like a very well-developed product that is perfect before it goes out to the public. Kopech, what were some other things that you noticed? I know that you having read a whole lot on Apple and their culture probably picked up on a lot of things here. Yeah, David started to mention one of them, which is Scott cites a measure twice and cut once culture at Apple, which is in opposition to kind of a iterate quickly, keep trying things and let the data help you decide culture at Google. So how fast they move and how careful they are about what they put out there was one thing that, that she definitely cited. The other thing was goes back to this whole idea of rock stars versus superstars. She said that at Google, it seemed like everyone was after the superstars, whereas at Apple, they valued more the rock stars. And there was actually ingrained in the management culture that there has to be a way of rewarding and encouraging the rock stars, which didn't exist as much at Google. So those were the two big things I think that she she mentioned. Let's talk about the two of you. How has feedback impacted your careers? Has there been a, like some point in your career that you can really remember very distinctly where getting some radical candor really made the difference? As I think of my career, um, I feel like I've mentioned this before, but I had just an incredibly high performing team at CVS. And, you know, I, I don't think that we had the terminology or the words for it, but I think on that team, we definitely cared personally for each other and provided feedback. And that was really helpful for me to understand, you know, like I'm the type of person, I'm very results oriented, very operational. I drive for results and I make things happen and I, you know, will go into a room or go into a meeting and blow things up and kind of like make it happen and leave the pieces behind me. Uh, And I think the manager that I had at CVS was somebody that would go in and smooth it over after me, right? Like, and, and we worked together very well in that way, but he also gave me really good feedback about like, you know, you need to have that skill set in order to grow within this company as well. And then in terms of upward feedback, I also had, you know, two awesome associates on my team who gave me a lot of really good upward feedback. So that was all incredibly helpful for me, I think, at that point in my career. Talked about consulting a bit during this. And obviously, like in consulting, you get a lot of feedback. 
I think my frustration with the feedback in consulting is that it is all performance oriented. And by performance oriented, I mean like end of year review oriented, right? So it's all about like, where are you on the matrix? What's your placement? You know, what is your bonus going to be? And essentially, and so it feels like it's often lacking that caring personally dimension, which I think makes it a bit more challenging to accept, right? Like, and the other thing is like, it's also very, very structured, right? Like there's five dimensions that you are rated on. There's probably like 30 or 40, honestly, sub dimensions that you are rated on, on a scale of one to five. Like it's, it's kind of overwhelming the amount of feedback that you get that it, it can be hard to really understand what the, uh, you know, key messages are, which, it, you know, any, anyone at my company that's like listening to this is going to be like, what? Like, that's all we do. That's all we focus on. But like, truly, it's just like, there's so much going on. And I, and I do think that the challenge is that it lacks the caring personally. And, and sometimes it lacks <laughs> uh, even being so candid, right? Like, so it almost goes into the manipulative insincerity quadrant. Sometimes I feel like when I'm getting the feedback. Yeah. So for, so for me, it's been, I've experienced it at this one team at CVS and I, and I don't think I've experienced it in quite the same way in consulting. Yeah. I think I had a a similar experience as Eli in consulting where it was the first time that I got very structured feedback on like a regular basis. I would get reviewed across this rubric, which was very similar to the one that she was just describing. Probably some other consulting firm sold it to both of us. But that feedback was, it was good because it was very specific, but rarely had the care personally dimension. And I guess I would say there were projects where I did get, did build a a close relationship with my managers and I could take that feedback a lot more, uh, you know, with much more of a grain of salt, et cetera, just like trust them because they had, you know, really gotten to know me and I knew them. And honestly, they, I think they gave more specific and good feedback when they had built those relationships. But I would say for the most part, you did, you did not feel that as much. And it was much more of a like, all right, ticking the box. This has to take place. Did this, that, and the other happen in this particular project? No. Okay. So you got like rated in this place, even if like, maybe you just didn't have the opportunity. And it was like a very weird, like, you know, uh, give and take there. I would say since then, the companies that I've been at have also had pretty uh, aggressive and similar rubrics for, for uh, annual and semi-annual reviews, depending on the company. And so in those cases, I've built relationship with, with managers over longer periods of time, though. And so I do think that the caring personally dynamic was much more there. And so, again, I do think there's like something about consulting with that like quick turnaround that it's just kind of hard to invest in the relationships in a certain way because you don't know that you're going to be working with this person for a long time and you just don't have that much time. And honestly, you were working crazy hours. And so you didn't necessarily want to spend like a ton of time, you know, on the the rest of it because you were already working, you know, 60, 70 hour a week, 80 hour a week, 100 hour a week sometimes on like the pure like output. And so like, do you want to spend another 30 minutes like chatting when you're going to take away from sleep because of it? So yeah, I, I guess I would say I've, I've experienced both of them. I do think um, when I've had that that opportunity to really have the relationship with the manager where they were caring personally, I do think like the, the challenge indirectly worked better. Feedback's been huge in my career. I talked about how important it is in teaching. I will st- just talk about some particular moments where praise, because that is supposed to be a big part of this, right? It's we're not, we don't just be candid about criticism, but we also be candid about praise has really helped me in my career. When I was doing app development, building apps for startup companies, small businesses in the 2013, 2014, 2015 timeframe. I was also adjunct teaching at a community college in New York. And one time my boss there at the community college, he took me aside and he's like, listen, David, I really think you should do this teaching thing. Like, I think this should be your full-time job. Like you're really good at it. And it wasn't something I was really thinking that was even a possibility for me. Like, and it just so happened that, you know, it started to be something that I thought about more and then actually applied for like some full-time opportunities because he took that moment. He also had gotten to know me. So there was definitely the caring personal side too, which was something he really didn't have to do with an adjunct, but he really took the time to do that. And so he really changed my career trajectory by, by giving me that, that feedback. And again, it was an impromptu thing. It wasn't like some formal meeting or anything. It was just he took the time to really get to know me and then take that opportunity to, to give me that feedback. And it totally changed the trajectory of my career. Okay, 
Is there anything else in the book that either of you want to talk about? Is there anything we missed that was important to you or you found interesting? I feel like we did a pretty good job covering most of the the key things, but the one thing that I think we didn't mention, which I liked and have heard before, but will always uh, echo, is the idea of using strong positions weekly held, and just that, like when you come into a conversation, if you're able to to really take a position and argue it, it really does advance the conversation. And so they they sort of take this in some some other directions within the book around sort of the the debate concept and, you know, needing to have people with different perspectives. And, you know, maybe even if people do mostly agree, just assigning someone to take the opposite side to really be able to to hone the argument and, you know, hear the uh, the steel man of the alternative. One concept that I liked in the book that was mentioned briefly was this idea of management fix-it weeks. Uh, and I think it was at Google and the idea being that, you know, they have hackathons where they work on coding and they don't do anything else for a week. But management fix-it weeks uh, being an idea of like looking at the bureaucracy or the red tape in the organization uh, and just going and fixing, right? Like going and fixing the expense process if that takes too long. And another thing that I just appreciated, I think kind of early on in the book, uh, Scott has this anecdote about how like, hey, not every job has to be so inspiring and that like it doesn't have to be your job as a manager to make you know, this, the dream job for everybody on your team. And that, that just like, I, I felt like I, I felt a sense of relief, honestly, because so, so frequently I, I feel this pressure as like the millennial to be like, Oh, like, this is such a great job that you write. Like, and here's, here's all these things that you don't appreciate about. And like, we're changing the world and all of these things. And she was like, you know what? Like sometimes you're just managing a call center team and they just have to answer the phone and like track some metrics. Uh, and it's better to be honest with that. And that, that to me, uh, was kind of liberating to see written in the book. All right. Now the big question, the most important question, do you recommend that our listeners read this book? If so, who should read the book? Yeah, I would definitely recommend the book. I would say, especially to a manager or honestly, any manager, but especially a new manager. Yeah, that would, I, I, I recommend it. I enjoyed it. I would, I guess I would say my one like mild qualification is a lot of the meetings and whatnot stuff. If you have read high output management and some other business books, it could be a little bit redundant. So you can maybe skim through some of that because I think it is, you know, covered in a lot of other places, but in general, I thought it was very good. Yeah, I agree. I know before we read this, we had a bit of a conversation of, is this the type of book where it could be an article and you read the article instead of reading the whole book? Having not read an article on it, so I've only read the book, uh, I really liked it. And I, I would recommend it. Uh, similarly, I think any any new manager, but anybody in a management role in general uh, should probably be aware of the concepts in this book. I think the first half of the book is uh, really helpful in kind of like setting up the benefits. And then the second half gets real specific. So you can probably skim the second half uh, and kind of search the parts that are most relevant for you. Uh, but definitely recommend. And I would recommend it too. It gave me a lot to think about, even though my management role as co-program director is pretty small. Um, It really did give me some ideas for how I can change things up and maybe make things better. I will contrast it again with that book that we read last season called Trillion Dollar Coach. Trillion Dollar Coach really has the same emphasis about caring about people, but also being really honest with them about when they're doing well and when they're not doing well. It's the like data side of this. It cites a million studies. It gets really into one person in particular, Bill Campbell, with the, the focus of the book. So you can kind of get this from either dimension. I would say this is actually the better book. It's better written. I think it's more organized. It's more coherent. So I would recommend this book over Trillion Dollar Coach. But if you want to get more of this from another angle, you could actually read both books. But yeah, I'd absolutely recommend it. Okay, next month, we're going to be reading Amazon Unbound by Brad Stone. It's the follow-up to Brad Stone's previous book on Amazon called The Everything Store. Very successful book. This new book, Amazon Unbound, just came out, and it basically follows where The Everything Store left off. So what's happened at Amazon since The Everything Store came out in 2014? What's the last seven years been like at Amazon? So I'm really looking forward to that. Is there anything that either of you want to plug? How can listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, so I mentioned this earlier, but I am actually currently hiring. So if anyone is looking for a product management role, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And the position 
I'm currently recruiting for is, uh, well, probably won't be the most recent tweet at the time this comes out, but is available in that feed. Nothing to plug, but as I mentioned in the last episode, I have a new puppy and he has an Instagram account. Uh, so since we read the Instagram book, I might as well plug that account. Archie, the Prince of NYC, he's very adorable and you can go check it out there. I'm trying to make him kind of uh, make his own money, afford, afford his uh, stay with us. Eli, congratulations again on the new role. You can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. And we look forward to seeing you again next month. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice. Bye.